the black rocks and revolution. Samurai punk feminist solution. White noise, your audio pollution. This is not a test. Calling all your slaves to the ground. Coming out your grace for the mind. Had eyes, but still you are blind. This is not a test. We're out here, you over there. This is episode 17. James Roll. Roel. R-O-W-E-L-L. This one's this one's dense. And uh, it's long and dense because uh, in terms of information, because that's kind of who James is. So, um, you non-technical people, I want you to hang in on this uh, podcast. I want you to, I still want you to listen to it because, hey, quiet over there. I'm trying to do a podcast. These guys don't come. Anyways, uh, I want you to understand the depth and the passion that James has for the analog world, which is really where music started in the recording world. That's right, make as much noise when I'm on a podcast. Uh, and um, just his passion about music and technology and how well he knows it. If you don't understand what he's saying, but at least you can grab his passion and his understanding and his depth. Uh, so my technical people, I started fiddling around with electronics when I was young and um, I started to understand why certain things sounded like they did with the technology and there was a shift in the business in the in, um, in the electronic world where we had original transistors were made were called the bipolar transistors they were heavy current the front end is has a very low resistance, the same with the back end, which didn't make it really preferable for electronics, but that's all we had at the time. And they were current-driven, they used a lot of energy, but the good thing was that they saturated and they sounded really good in audio. And um, that's important. Then later on, we got into field-effect transistors. And they're a different manufacturing process but their ideal for electronics is my technical people know because they had a very high resistant front end which made them great to chain them together for computers and processors and CPUs and a very low resistance on the back end and but their sound was uh, atrocious but they've come a long way but um James gets into the 60s and 70s when it was cool to be in music and cool to come out of school and work on sound boxes or sound consoles, things to do with sound, and people were really excited about it. And he said that that transferred into the quality that came from that era, which I find really interesting. The culture and the technology um, sort of cross paths. Um, I try my best to keep up with him, try to explain stuff, uh, but he's at a whole nother level right in in the industry so he he runs an extremely niche market and um near the time of this uh a couple weeks out before i was trying to get james in the podcast and his dad had passed away and his dad was a big influence on his life you know uh james started learning about electronics before he was four years old and um his dad passed a lot of wisdom and knowledge down to him and you'll see it in this podcast. So this is a this is a tough one to get to if you're not a technical person. But as a technical person, it's really interesting. And um, 
Um, again, we have to give credit for James and sort of his the depth that he, that he is, and he's trying to explain it to us in the best way he knows how. So that's another reason why, even if you're not a technical person, you might want to listen to it through anyway and just catch up on the vibe of this podcast. All right, James, uh, James, roll here. This is episode 17. Let's get into it. It's hard to be quiet here on the road. I'm trying to do a podcast. I mean, what the heck? It's the pop minority part that's famous. <laughs> oh, okay. It's now the Apollo. Yeah, I should spend most of my time trapped in recording studios, so um, <laughs> crawling under old consoles. Okay, so Alan, just a background. James uh, fixes uh, well everything about um, original analog sound consoles, like the top end ones in studios, right? That's what he does. That's fantastic because I love uh, analog. Well, you're in the right place. Yeah, it is wonderful. Analog yeah, is when the music to... was created. <laughs> the yeah, warmth. Yeah. Well, it, warmth. It, it, mm-hmm. well, it's authenticity to me, really, more than anything else. It's a feeling of naturalness. And, mm-hmm. you know, and the bottom line, I mean, why would you want to change it into something else just to have to change it back? And there's a lot of, you know, losses and compromises, you know, with the conversion process, even still. Um, headroom's a problem. Headroom's always been a problem with digital, more in the way that it handles peak overload as opposed to, you know, inherently not having headroom at all, although although the, you know, amount of headroom could be improved, but that's something we can certainly, you know, get into more detail on. I've got some pretty strong, uh, you know, technically based opinions on all that sort of thing, but yeah, um, so what's your background in terms of um, the, th- the theater and everything and live sound primarily? Well, uh, I'm a musician. I, I, I was in a band back in the uh, 70s, 80s. And, uh, you know, uh, we grew up, we did some demos and stuff. We didn't get the luxury of recording a, an album. We never got that done. But but all my right. experience in the studio and and, and uh, back in the day, everything, or most was analog. And uh, my sons went on to record later on and, and uh, tour and do some albums and such. But uh, oh, yeah. the theater, the theater uh, where I met Brad and where I where I served, you know, the gig theater, um, mm-hmm. you know, okay. uh, I, 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 I just I've always been a fan of the analog uh, and the digital. I understand it's, it's more convenient. I know it, it's got more capacity. I know it's easier for for engineers um to integrate all these technologies and apps and everything else but i i i don't care there's nothing like analog and no. so you're preaching, you're preaching to the choir brother yeah and when you find i mean you get into you know the topmost levels of uh recording studios and what producers and engineers are you know going after and everything it's still large format analog consoles in fact it's been more that again you know for the past six years i would say or you know even eight years now than it was for the preceding 10 before that um you know it tends to ebb and flow but uh certainly there's been a vast resurgence in the accompanying you know very rapid and significant elevation in vintage gear valuations i mean you know many items including hardware outboard aside from large format consoles and recording consoles have 
specific brands in particular, um, Neve being the primary one, but, you know, even anything vintage API or some of the old uh, other smaller consoles, Electrodyne, Sphere, um, Quad 8, all of those consoles worth substantial amounts of money is substantially more than they were worth even, you know, 10 years ago or just after the last recession. And particularly in the case of Neve, I mean, values have more than doubled at this point in the last 10 years. So um, you will find, you know, with very top echelons of recording and, you know, top flight recording studios and producers and engineers really still seek the, you know, analog sound. And it's, it's about, a, you know, everyone's, you know, says well the warmth is a common term um yeah honestly a lot of that sometimes you know and especially in my work you know i'll hear something and i've had so much experience over the years um you know listening in a technical fashion as opposed to you know being a recording engineer which is actually almost really a different thing in my mind mm-hmm. uh it's the same skills it's the same you know desired outcome but what you're listening for as opposed to you know being in a session and you know kind of in the heat of tracking so to speak and everyone's around the studio and all the musicians are out in the live room and the producers there and you know you're listening primarily for performance at that point and you know when you're mixing obviously you know you're more working on your own and you know you're going for different tones to get different you know effects and you know, treatments on each track and get everything to blend together the way you want. But, you know, it's also more of a thing where you can actually end up accidentally working around deficiencies, you know, in some item of, of equipment that you have or some sort without really realizing it. No, I'm turning up the LF more to compensate for, you know, the responses dropping off because the capacitors are going bad. And invariably, you know, I'll get something on the bench and, well, it works. It's just sounding, you know, or this or there's a noise or something someone you know brings it in and it's not only just that it's actually you know a ton of different areas where they don't meet original specification you listen to it and it just doesn't sound right and it's sort of more really of a feeling of anything else and in terms of so james um so james you got um what we Mm -hmm. discussed just so james i'm just gonna tell everybody what's what's happening right now just our audience when they listen yeah sure so James is talking about neat consoles. They were designed probably in the 50s, 60s. Is that correct, James? Uh, 70s, you know, the classic 70s. So these, period, yeah. All this technology he's talking about is what original studios were loaded with. And he's talking about uh, when an analog console this is getting passed, it's not for me and James, but in general audience, when you hammer the input of an analog console, it has a way with dealing distortion and overloading in a way that's preferable to human hearing whereas digital consoles they just run out because there's no more data left to do anything and they go off and do their own thing and it sounds absolutely horrendous um so just so everybody knows we're on the same we're talking about analog consoles and excuse me uh, as in the uh the pop minor report uh sort of format we're not and james is not here totally talking about technology he's talking about his relationship between technology and music. So, and this is the way he's explaining it to us. So thank you, James. Can you continue, please? Yeah, sure. So um, what, picking up where I left off, really, and as far as from, 
you know, an engineering perspective or a use perspective, it's, it's a workflow. It's a feeling that, you know, for, you can for do. you, this is how you, you as a person, right. In this technology, connecting the two worlds, right. This is the feeling, right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's about a, a really quick, easy workflow rather than, you know, some of the restrictions and sort of almost like, you know, a natural disconnect between processing music and seeing it in terms of waveforms and, you know, making maneuvers with the mouse and everything like that. Um, in a really well-functioning analog uh, studio setup, it's generally still much faster to do I things that, that I way. I get that. I can see that. Yeah. It's very direct. So, you know, it's direct. Yeah. You don't have to plan yeah, it. Anything. is, yeah. And, no, and you can play, you know, the best mixers and the best recording engineers. They play the control room and the console like an instrument themselves. Aha. I get that. You know, so okay. that's a real relationship in, in terms of, you know, the musicality of it. And one interesting thing, and you mentioned earlier about, you know, um, or your colleague Alan mentioned earlier, actually, uh, you know about the convenience of digital and the ease of it and you, you can recall it right away and you can go and edit it and all of this sort of different things and yeah it's opened up a lot of different choices but it's also made it a situation where you know you're so inundated with possibilities sometimes people feel disconnected from you know the focus of just recording analog and you know the firm decisions that you have to make along the way I've had people make that comment in terms of losing touch with, you know, the musicality of, you know, what they're trying to do. And Alan made an interesting comment where, yeah, it's much more convenient, but the unique thing about the recording industry and of course, many other industries too, but specifically recording was what is always better. And that really guided the, you know, advancements in technology throughout the years, better tape machines, you know, from disc recording and then going to tape when it finally became workable and, you know, better and better tape machines, better consoles, better room design, better acoustics, um, lower noise equipment, uh, you know, superior electrical wiring techniques and all these sort of things. Um, you know, every year it was okay. How can we make it better? How can we make recordings better? Because what you're really doing is you're preserving you know, the musician, the artist's art, you know, for the rest of time and people can um, listen back to it later. And so it was always, well, why wouldn't you want to do that at the highest possible quality? And, and coming up to about, oh, the mid to late seventies, uh, just in terms of the technical side of it, what I find very interesting is that was high-end audio and products for recording studios in the mid to late seventies. That was about the coolest thing you could do as a top level EE coming out of, you know, college and electrical engineer. And, you know, prior to that, it was television. And then after that, it became communications. And after that point, I mean, everyone always asks, oh, why does the older equipment sound better? Why is, you know, stuff from up, up to about the late 1970s sound better than everything else? And the reason was they were developing it to the maximal of what they could do with it oh, okay, in concern. So so, James, are you yeah. saying that in that era, it became popular for, for technical people out of school to get into music and get into the studio? 
Yeah, what, get into in terms of being equipment designer specifically, I was referring to, uh, okay. to you know, like in going to work for a company like Neve or work for a company like API and be involved in, you know, that top level. I mean, the recording industry was just expanding massively and studios were opening up all over the place. Uh, you know, <clears throat> tape machines were in high demand, recording consoles, all this classic gear net that, you know, people sell on reverb for eight thousand dollars a piece now and all of this sort of stuff so that was like you know the coolest thing you could do as an electrical engineer coming you know out of school oh, you, okay. wanted, you know so to like, be in, like, in so that it's area it's a cultural thing it's a cultural thing as well yeah yeah you so type, you know you got these music types that actually get to like you get to form the culture and the music through the technical route does that make sense to everybody yeah it does yeah that's a really good way of describing it in terms of the relationship between what the progression of technology and electronics overall and what uh -huh. you know they were trying to do and how far they were really you know pushing designs and uh you know topologies and everything else just you know year over year it was like you know it was basically like the new car market is now and every year you know they'd release a new console that you know was better than last year's and now 50 years later you know these pieces of gear are revered and you know held on to like you know icons almost of um not of another age but just of the peak of what was possible because they weren't concerned about costs you know they weren't concerned about size they weren't concerned about how much power it drew from the wall or how inefficient it was it was just the best they could do and then after that point in terms of you know even the consumer electronic market very obviously but the pro market as well essentially any further development beyond about the late 70s was you know there was the digital revolution in you know the early 80s and a lot of you know cool digi digital effects came out and that sort of thing and pretty much past that it was more just okay how can we make it you know more efficiently and less expensively to that point and you know, I mean, obviously, digital's come a very long way. As you've been around for, you've been around it for a very long time, you know, as well. Right. And, I remember, like, yeah. uh, I remember when the Rev Seven came out, and the noise floor yeah. on it was unreal. Uh, yeah, they're a little like, noisy. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> compared just, to say a Lexicon two twenty four or something. Yeah. But so, uh, James, it's a, it, when I I started off my career mixing live on analog consoles where I had one compressor that I had to choose what I could do with it and I had a tape delay. Yeah. Right. Right. And I was using <laughs> I was using sure. I got to use Midas's in, that were built in the seventies. But anyway, when oh, I worked nice. on, yeah. They're well, lovely. Yeah. So when I work on a digital console coming from that era, all I do is just turn it I just leave everything open. I don't insert anything. And then mm -hmm. I I start to mix and then I go, oh, I'll add this because I need it. Whereas the next this generation now, they, they plug everything into every channel and then they start mixing like that has to be there when it doesn't. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. You I'm know, used to and just going I mean, straight through. Yeah. And then if, you know, you listen and then if you need something, but now it's more, it's almost like, you the know, a, form, a formula that's yes. applied, you know, okay, well, this is someone else's chain and this is my chain and this is the chain that I use for, you know, this instrument, that instrument, this instrument, this is my vocal chain. And, you know, everyone passes, passes it around and great. And okay, that's, you know, an interesting exchange in one way, but it 
does seem to be exactly like you're saying. Yeah, people are really getting away from the heart of it in terms of, you know, listen, don't, you know, I mean, when I went to college for recording engineering and it turned out even, you know, at that time in college, I mean, there was other people there that would, you know, make better mixes than me. And I'd get, you know, too technical with it and muck with things too much. And I never did anything good until I just did it quickly without thinking, you know, and then get, get finally, get finally to the point where, Hey, that sounds good. And then remember not to mess with it any more than that. You know, in the second you're like, the second you're like, Hey, that sounds good. I can make that better. It all goes to, you know, to trash, right? All of a sudden, you know, you're going to get the hockey stick out and just pull all the faders down. So, you know, start it again. But obviously, you can't do that live because it, it'll cut the sound for a minute. But I mean, you know, you go to do a mix. But yeah, so um, I got into it at that point, and I was, I was already really technically oriented. You know, I mean, I could patch anything to anywhere and, you know, always get it up to come up on the console. Now, you know, making a good mix, you know, maybe that was not so much, you know, what I was into and I could align, align the heck out of a Studer A80. So, and I already had an electronics background, you know, from my dad, from, um, you know, and then fixing guitar amps and everything in the, uh, in high school for everyone. That's kind of how it started. I I saw a post he put up, it was a handbook, a radio handbook for like, it looks like from the sixties. Yeah. Because that's something your dad yeah. learned from? Yeah, that was one of his books. And uh, that was something I read through cover to cover like four times over when I was 12 or 14. I didn't understand half of it, you know. And um, I just, I mean, I was always around it. So he was an electronics engineer, was educated in the late 50s. He grew up with tubes, um, taught me everything that I know. Um, I did courses later on in high school and a bit in college as well but um you know i mean i was around i i knew what capacitors and resistors were when i was four years old so yeah just, you know kind of from there and uh you know built it up from there but that brings back more memories tube amps i mean when our band was playing i mean there was you know the noise the noise they would make when you loaded them on stage and the but and then the all the care <laughs> and everything but there's nothing like an analog tube amp uh, you know, compared to the digital, although the digitals are getting better, there's still nothing yeah. like an analog amplifier. Um, but I just want to go back. There's one favorite story. You know, one of the most unpopular Queen albums was Queen 2. And they said mm-hmm. they could never do it again. They did a little bit on Bohemian Rhapsody um, on Night at the Opera. But Queen 2 is my, was my favorite Queen album. And most people go, what is that? It was the least commercial album, but it's probably their best album the the white queen and the dark black queen or something anyway the vocals were out of this world and they 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 used i i can't remember how many oh i get what do you do in an analog like they ran out of room but it was all analog and the work they had to go through it was like a like somebody like you they had a ma- a, a maestro or a masterpiece created um out of a lot of work on an analog uh system that didn't have a lot of room oh not yeah. enough channels alan i think your chain didn't have enough channels i think that's, that's right right uh what <clears throat> song was popular in queen 2 queen 2 was not popular but it's oh, a okay. beautiful it's a fantastic album if you've never heard it i i recommend go get queen 2 you can that you can listen to it on youtube i guess but but it's I've played it for my kids and 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 you know they're hardcore metal guys. 
but they were like this album is crazy uh it is a it's a it's a brilliant album and the vocals you think bohemian rhapsody something their whole album is like that hmm. queen Two's the one that's um it's really hard rock for queen right and it's pretty pro- pretty progressive really right yeah 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 it's the it's it's sort of like the lord of the rings in music or something yeah oh yeah okay okay maybe it's not the one i was thinking of but yeah because i mean to me they they started out with more of a rock sound and then you know progressed to the the other stuff later on but you're talking queen one they had a couple of hits Ah, uh, of chart hitters off that one that was a prog rock album queen two Ah, nobody knows it I, I took it from the library when I was painting a house. I was a kid. I was 16 or something. And I just about fell off my chair. What is this? Yeah. It was yeah, fantastic. No and to this date, people go, Queen, oh, yeah, I know. You, they don't know this album. So that's your homework. And, and that's, on, that's on an analog <laughs> board. Right, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, everything was back then. You know, uh, everyone always had a thing where it was – Oh, the albums in the 60s and 70s sound best. The albums in the 60s and 70s sound best. And that's starting to fade away a bit now. I mean, it's sort of more like a more sort of all in really full hybrid format of production. You know, you can track with analog gear and mic pre's up front or a console up front and then, you know, do a whole bunch of stuff in Pro Tools and then, you know, either mix it back analog or, unfortunately, more commonly that is starting to fade away a bit now and you know just due to recallability and the amount of um after mix changes that people ask for now and they they expect you know to be able to do that quickly so more in the box mixes are you know taking place but a lot of the top stuff people are still mixing on you know large format analog consoles and uh they've really had quite a resurgence over, you know, I mean, if you would have asked me these questions 10 years ago, I would have said, well, I mean, I just expect to do just the standalone modules out of the consoles for, you know, the foreseeable future. So. Right. So um, that means, uh, so everybody knows instead of buying a whole console, people are buying a channel out of the console and they use it specifically for vocals or for plug it through the system for a guitar track or something like that. Right. Is that what you mm-hmm, mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And depending <laughs> very strongly on what manufacturer and what console it is uh neve was always specific in terms of really the one brand that traditionally always built standalone modules that you could readily easily rack and use on their own so that's one of the i feel one of the main reasons well other than that they sound they always sound musical they always sound fabulous that's one of the main reasons to me why they over anything else were always so popular because a lot of the other consoles, you know, you take out the EQ and then the output stage and the balanced output transformer was, you know, elsewhere in the console or it was part of the group output or oh, yeah, you know something like yeah. that. So if it wasn't part of the bus. No, it wasn't part of the actual self-contained module, but generally speaking, Neve modules always had transformer balanced inputs and a transformer balanced output all contained in the module and then they link them together in various ways in the consoles to you know accomplish the console signal flow that they wanted to achieve so if you know and understand the neve system i mean you can you know they could use that you know building block formula um 
you know, to build up any configuration they, well, within reason that they wanted at the factory, um, you know, henceforth, a lot of the consoles were actually to specifically to custom order, especially in the mid seventies. And then, uh, it is possible of course, to, you know, update them in the field to, you know, accomplish, you know, different things with the routing of the console based on what one, what workflow you want to use. And, you know, there's specific workflows back then that, really aren't used, you know, today with, you know, the advent of Pro Tools. And of course, you'd know of uh, recording with a full split monitor console where you have the input channels and then the tape monitor is a completely different section, like a yeah. sound, like in Soundcraft, like a, like a Soundcraft 1200 or 2400, you know what I mean? So uh, Neves were like that, they're a traditional split console. And they had a few models that were sort of, you know, quasi inline, like, you know, MCI and SSL progressed later to that. You know, you so you that, see the big con. Are you saying that Neve would make a full mm -hmm. full console, but each each module in sitting in the console would have an in and output transformer on each yeah, channel, do, then yeah. send it to the sun bus? Yeah. But yeah. But each console so I, weighed a thousand weighted thousands of pounds. Yeah, the bigger ones do. Yeah. But like they would you be know, so the, heavy, man. That'd be crazy. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And there's a lot of transformers on the way from the microphone to the tape uh, to the tape input and then from the tape output, tape machine output, or you know, Pro Tools, whatever you're using, uh, out to actually getting it to, you know, the speakers to your ears. I mean, like seven or eight transformers in a row. So yeah, change, don't say that that would really change the sound. <laughs> It does, although the transformers are very high quality. It just happens to be that the way that it changes the sound is pleasing and always musical, especially on rock, especially on, you know, rock vocals, drums, guitars, bass. Uh, they just work really, really well for that. I mean, you know, would I use a 70s Neve to record a full orchestra and strings? No, you know, I mean, they sound a little, they sound a little reedy in the upper mid range on that sort of thing. Yeah, okay. You know the you know the original score, like the original store score for Star Wars? Yeah. I, I hear it, yes. Yeah. You know, it's sort of reedy and kind of I'll have to go back and listen. Thin, thin in the upper mid-range on the strings. Right. So what you're saying is is that that was so, cut on a Neve. <laughs> right. So everybody knows that when you drive transformers. They don't work when you drive transformers to technical people don't know, why they sound warm to us is because they saturate. That's another mm. whole Alan, that's yeah. one of the reasons why guitar amps and stuff, because they drive the front end of the of a transformer. But um, you got less than 10 minutes left, so we're about eight. Oh, yeah. Sure, um, sure. So is there anything um, specific you want to talk about, James, sort of that's still within the crossroads between uh, music and technologies or something that, that stands out for you? Like, how old are you? Uh, 48. Oh, so you're born around my era. Um, yeah, yeah. Little younger, I think, but not too yeah. too much. So, uh, so is there anything that stands out in terms of now. music and technology that for for us to, to share with the audience here before we head out? Ah, uh, let me think. Um, well, we could talk about digital versus analog. It's sort of more of a technical conversation. I mean, music versus technology. Um, like I was saying at the point was always to, you know, make things better and preserve the artist's vision for, you know, the future. And you, you know, you're making a record, right. You're recording it, you know, it's going to last for, you know, at this point, I mean, you know, there's still digital copies and digital preservation of original Edison's, you know, wax cylinders. So 
it's obvious we can keep going. And the interesting thing about music and technology is that the media keeps changing and the way that we do things keeps changing and progressing and, yeah. you know, okay. evolving, evolving. But um, the point always remains the same. It's that, you know, what are you doing to enhance the artist's vision and preserve it on tape or, well, like I, <laughs> the format always changes. So to, you know, preserve it in some sort of manner. Um, and so is that and some... and that... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. In essence, you know, the formats, because they're always changing, are always interchangeable. You know, people can work with digital. They can, you know, work with analog tape at the same time on the same project now or switch back and forth depending on what artistic aesthetic they want to, you know, impress upon the recording depending on what, you know, their vision is. And that's what it's all about in the end is, you know, the technology is a vehicle to, right, okay. you know, get to music and you know, for me, it was always the thing where I had the musicality and appreciation of music and starting out with classical music uh, from my mother and my hearing from her and then uh, the technical side and electronics uh, background from my dad. So it's been, you know, really wonderful. It's been a wonderful journey so far. You know, I'm honored to have done some of the stuff I've done and well, all of the stuff I've done and, uh, you know, keep learning every day and, you know, progress and you know preserve and enhance you know this equipment and hopefully for future generations and you know the interest seems to keep building and building and you know it's uh it's a lot of fun in the end it's rewarding it's uh it's fun, trying yes. fun i've yeah. heard of that music's fun yeah. Yeah, yeah it is it should be i mean <laughs> you know there's lots of trials and tribulations on the way though i mean doing analog it isn't easy you know um that's true you got to do I mean, to bother doing it now and at the values everything are at, it only makes sense to do it at the highest possible level. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. You know, uh, Neil, Dr. Neil Muncy, I don't know your listeners would be familiar with him, but I, he, I know who he is. Yeah, good, good. Uh, RIP, but he was uh, extremely instrumental for any of the listeners in. Uh, diagnosing and taking care of a lot of uh, interface and hum issues that used to exist in audio equipment, really getting to the bottom of, uh, of why a lot of these issues are occurring and uh, pioneering techniques in uh, studio uh, electrical wiring, which I, I utilize myself. And uh, it all comes from him. Uh, major, 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 and uh, rather, unfortunately, lesser known uh, force and massive contributor to the industry. And he said, always said that uh, audio is like uh, peeling an onion. You peel a layer and you cry a little more. You peel another layer and you cry a little more. You peel a little, <laughs> little layer and you cry a little more. And eventually you get down to the core and everything works and it just sounds. And if you push it that far, it's like, you know, it's nothing that you've ever, it's like nothing that you've ever heard of. And it, it's a feeling. I know when to stop when I get goosebumps and I'm, you know, then, you know, because you know that's what it's all about it's about an artistic feeling of uh you know what the best that can possibly be done for sonic you know for recording is in terms of sound and i mean you guys have the same thing in live you know you always want it to sound as good as you can so yeah it's been, awesome. that's a, that, been that's really a good answer it's a good way to put it the goosebumps is where yeah. you stop mm -hmm. yeah 
Yeah. Well, it's like I was saying about mixing earlier, you know, when you get it to sound, when you think you sound, it sounds really, really good. It's time to stop because then you're just going to, you know, go too far. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, you don't need to do something in terms all the time. of, in terms of taking, you know, directly applying technology uh, to musicality and music, um, in terms of servicing equipment, it, after a long time, it becomes, you know, well beyond just getting it to work, you know, having signal pass through it is sort of more of a starting point. And then uh, you get to the point where you can, you know, really stir it like a stew to, you know, have the outcomes that feel the best, you know, till you get those goosebumps and then, you know, you know that everything is the way it should be. So I think the key to remember there is that all the designers back then really knew what they were doing and they put time, effort and diligence and listening, you know, just whip by ear into their designs. So they didn't really ever make anything that sounded, you know, bad. There's a few examples, but. You think that James, that James Rupert or Albert, no, Rupert Neve. Oh, Rupert Neve and all those Rupert guys. Neve, yeah. Do you think that they, because I don't know enough about them, you probably know where, do you think they, they were music people? Uh, I mean, funnily enough, I mean, Leo Fender couldn't play a note, you know, and the story goes that he'd sit there and plunk on a low E string all day and, you know, tune the amp until it sounded best with that. But, you know, he had good people around him. He knew what he wanted to hear. Rupert Neve was the same case. Um, you know, he had um, a background in uh, sound and did um, live sound and built little PAs and that sort of thing um, at first and then uh, designed a couple of, you know, small mixing consoles. And then someone wanted to ask him for a console with a bit of EQ on it. So he did something with that. And then the company started expanding. Then uh, he took on the manager, managing director role, which in the UK, managing director is basically like CEO over here. And then uh, he had a real good habit of surrounding himself with very very talented well-educated knowledgeable people and they you know opened up an r d department the company expanded rapidly they had uh they had well over 400 employees in the mid 70s and it was a big operation you know i don't think people realize the scale that audio was on in terms of recording you know specific equipment designed and made primarily for recording studios although of course their primary market as all the manufacturers back then were broadcast so that's where they made their money and the recording stuff was you know something that they did too but uh yeah i mean well over 400 employees and that's you know a massive company compared to you know these days with you know even boutique specialist you know audio companies that are either reproducing vintage equipment or uh made their own new designs now which has really you know taken place over the last 10 years as well which is great you know because i mean there's any one of 20 you know sources that you can go to for you know a Neve-like preamp, for example. All right, well, that's a wrap for James' podcast. Thank you, James. And uh, as you can see from this podcast, is really into technology, the analog world, and sort of where he lives in his life. And um, we got a chance to listen to his story the way he best can tell it for himself and for the podcast so thank you and we're on to the next one